Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we have Timothy Brook, Professor of Chinese History at the University of British Columbia, and Michael Van Volt van Praag, who is president of the conflict resolution nonprofit CREDA. And they'll be talking about a pretty unique, partly co authored, partly co edited volume, Sacred Mandates. Asian International Relations Since Chinggis Khan, which was published in 2018 by University of Chicago Press. And I should also mention that there's another third co-editor on the roster, namely Meek Boltius, who is Director of Dialogue Facilitation at uh, the claim credit uh, nonprofit that Michael works at, but she sadly is not able to join us today. Now, topics relating to Asian international relations, sovereignty, territory or borders are in the news more or less daily, from Hong Kong to Xinjiang, Kashmir, Aksai Chin, or the Senkaku or Diaoyu Islands, the list continues. And it's almost enough to make you wonder if there isn't a bit more going on here than just modern territorial entities disagreeing about who presides over what bit of land. And well, obviously that question is raised facetiously, because a superficial look at the recent history of almost any part of the world makes it fairly obvious that the order of bounded sovereign states imagine ourselves to have today is both a pretty new and a historically highly contingent phenomenon. Neither the borders nor the territorial or sovereign entities that we have in our present world uh, have been with us for forever, not that they're, they're relatively new in many cases. And as Timothy Brooke, Michael Van Volt, Meek Boltius and their host of expert co-authors make clear in Sacred Mandates, Inner and East Asia is a region where this novelty and contingency is not only very obvious, but also where it matters a great deal. Whether we're looking at what we today call China, Mongolia, Tibet, Korea, Vietnam, the Ryukyu Islands, Shan State, or Hokkaido, we're dealing with places and peoples that had very different kinds of political, economic, and social relations until pretty recently. The transformation from these older ties, more layered, relational, and non-exclusive than today's international relations are supposed to be, to modern, bounded sovereign statehood, and this is a quote, did not happen overnight, and in some cases, it can be argued, has not fully occurred yet. But it's with this uh, intriguing hint of what the book's about uh, that I'll lure you in and say, uh, Tim Brooke and Michael Van Volt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Well, uh, Tim and Michael, uh, I'm very grateful for you uh, agreeing to appear today to talk about this uh, fascinating volume. Uh, but perhaps I could start us off by asking you to talk about uh, your own backgrounds. Uh, this book spans a pretty wide range of disciplinary interests. Um, so could you perhaps uh, give us a clue about uh, how you came uh, to uh, to be interested in the specific things that you're interested in and, and how you came to work together? Tim, why did you go first? I'm a historian of the Ming Dynasty uh, principally, but I've also done research on uh, China up until the 20th century. And... Um, uh, the opportunity arose, Michael approached me to um, attempt to think much more broadly about Asia th- than we've done in the past. Um, my earlier work has been social and economic history, some political history, but this drew me out to questions of interstate, interpolity relations, diplomacy. Um, so I was... Uh, I was very keen to uh, when, when Michael suggested we might we might try and think on a much larger scale, not as specialists on our areas in my case China, but to think all across Asia about how to approach the problems that we face today of international relations in Asia. Um, I think Michael would be better uh, better positioned to to really suggest how the project came about from from his position. Sure, Michael. What, yes, and what, what is your what's your own background? How did you how did you come to this? My background is um, in international law. Um, so I'm an international lawyer, but um, already for a long time 
had a specialization in um, Tibet, China, uh, and somewhat bro- more broadly in Asia. Uh, having done my dissertation on the subject of the status of Tibet in international law. Um, and then um, worked both as a, as a lawyer um, in Washington, D.C. and in London. Um, then worked uh, for an organization called the Unrepresented Nations and Peoples Organization that I headed, which worked with very many um peoples and nations that are not um, independent and therefore also not represented in the UN um, and became very familiar with the types of issues that they face and that the governments uh, of the regions in which they are, that they form a part of face uh, and a lot of conflicts between them. Um, that that experience resulted in the creation of CREDA, which is a, an organization that deals very specifically with intrastate conflicts, conflicts within existing states, between population groups and, and governments mostly. Um, and um, and at the, so I, I have been heading that organization since 1999 um, and mediating those kinds of conflicts uh, and peace processes in different parts of the world um, and doing research on um, on issues that create uh, obstacles in peace processes and that are recurring. We find when you're mediating uh, these uh, negotiations to resolve these kinds of conflicts that a number of obstacles um to reaching a peace agreement uh are very frequent come back again and again not just when we're doing this this work but also colleagues of ours doing it in other parts of the world and um so this really prompted the idea um to explore one of these obstacles which is the um very different and often conflicting perceptions of history between parties in a conflict or between parties uh, at a negotiation table, um, realizing that this is very deep-seated and needs to be addressed in some way, uh, we, we embarked on, on trying to understand how um, different perceptions of history originate and, and what role they play. Um, and so this is what what brought me back, if you like, to uh, the area of Inner Asia and East Asia that I already had an interest in earlier, uh, because there's a lot of these types of contrasting or conflicting perceptions of history there that play a very important role today. So that's that's how we got to it. Um, and I was fortunate to, uh, at some point in the project, to be invited to be on the faculty of the School of Historical Studies at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, um, where I was for four years, um, given the the uh, facilities and opportunity, besides the tasks that I had on the faculty, to spend uh, working on this project, uh, both in terms of the seminars that we were organizing at the time, um, but also uh the, the the research and writing for it i see i mean how was it obviously you outlined there you know a pretty different kind of a background and trajectory to that which uh, which tim mentioned previously how was it that the two of you actually met in the first place and then uh, you already also just hinted at the conferences and the workshops and so on that uh, underlay the, the project and that the book ultimately resulted from can you give us a picture of of what actually took place uh, under the auspices of the project. Well, if if I could step in here, um, there were uh, Michael and uh, Meek together organized a series of seminars to try and bring specialists in all the parts of the world we wanted to deal with together to have a conversation. And the first of those meetings uh, happened to be at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. So um, I was, uh, through a, a mutual Tibetan friend, I was invited to become part of that first meeting. And uh, it was there that, that uh, Michael and I uh, thought it might be interesting to have me 
be an ongoing presence in the seminars that he was organizing. And that, that led in turn uh, to my, my being uh, more directly involved in the writing up of the project later on. And I'm just going to say that it was, um, it, for me, it was a great opportunity because as academics, and probably we're mostly speaking to academics on this podcast, um, we tend to speak to each other and not speak outside the, the world in which we live and work and think. So the opportunity to work with, with uh, specialists from the conflict resolution area who, who look at the same problems but from that perspective, um, I thought was wonderful. And it, it, it was a very rewarding project to be involved in. Absolutely no. It's certainly a unique meeting of, of worlds, I think, and and there's a yeah a, a real value, I think, especially in this in this region in having these kind of discussions because uh, so often uh, people are not having them. But also, uh, as uh, I think we'll get into uh, pretty soon, the region itself is one which is so dominated by uh, concerns over uh, di- divergent views of history and and of course somewhere really of unparalleled geopolitical importance uh, at the present moment. Um, so, yeah, no, I think it's a, a tr- tremendous, tremendous project. Um, and uh, on which note, I think perhaps we'll jump into the book itself, uh, which obviously details the outcomes of the project. So um, you mentioned that uh, briefly there that you had this sort of series of, of workshops and things over five years, I believe it was, of research collaborations and, and, and conferences and so on. Um, could I just ask, I mean, in terms of framing uh, the book as a whole, um, it says Inner and East Asia, and, and this is the region which, uh, Michael, you mentioned is your you know, your original kind of um, area of, of, of academic speciality. In very naive terms, where is uh, Inner and East Asia? What was, the, what was the region you came to decide to focus on, and how did you come to that decision? Well, Inner, inner Asia is... Um... Uh, is a term that has been used differently by different um, in different countries, but also by different scholars. And so there isn't a very clear definition of what Inner Asia means, which is why we have defined the region that we um, address in the book um, at the start of the book. We've, we've outlined what we mean by it um, rather than, than attempting to say this is the only correct definition of it. And so the, the regions that we were interested in looking at are, um, is a, a, um, a region that has interacted with, with within itself, or if you like, among different polities within that region, very intensely um, over history. And so it involves um, East Asia, which I think is much better defined generally, uh, that includes obviously what we call China today and um, the Korean Peninsula and Japan and Southeast Asia. Um, although we've concentrated primarily on some of them on Vietnam and some northern Southeast Asia. Um, and uh, in terms of Inner Asia, we're looking essentially at the Mongolian and Tibetan plateau and the um, stretching down to. Um, the uh, southern Himalayas and the, and the the, the states uh, on the on the southern slopes of the Himalayas. So that is that is the region we're looking at. Um, and one of the questions that obviously comes up is um, why we do not include the Islamic regions of um, uh, of what is very often called Central Asia. Um, and and the decision was simply made um, because we found that the uh, degree of interaction between that world and the worlds that we were looking at um, were not as intense, uh, did not impact each other as much um, during the period that the, the time period that we're looking at in uh, in the history, and simply out of practicality. Because one needs to limit the um, the scope of this kind of study, uh, and since we were looking at the, the the types of conflicts that we were looking at were those um, between the Tibetans and the Chinese and the Mongolians and and the Vietnamese and the Koreans and the Japanese, it made sense to limit it to uh, to that region. And 
Ed, if I can come in here, um, the elephant in the East Asian room and the inner Asian room, of course, is China. And we were determined not to be Sinocentric because it, 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 it's very easy or it, it's, a, it's a bad habit, if you like, when people talk about uh, East Asian international relations to somehow make everything coming from China. We did not want this book to be Sinocentric. We wanted to see China as simply one of several centers of, of diplomatic protocol, of theological expectations about the ruler, of interstate practices. We wanted China to be, to be seen among a set of equal, other equal traditions and not make this a China book. So when we say international relations since Genghis Khan, we avoided, um, we avoided saying that it was inner Asia or East Asia. We tried to, um, but we also were, were concerned that this not be seen as a book about China. China is simply one player among many. Mm, no, I think that, that, that is, comes through very well. It, it, uh, balances perspectives in a, in a tremendously, uh, well, uh, yeah, balanced way, I suppose. <laughs> it definitely doesn't come out as this sort of China, Sinocentric uh, presentation of this history and in a way that is, that's so important because I suppose methodological uh, Sinocentrism has been just as much of an issue as uh, I, practical political Sinocentrism uh, in, in this region um, in, the last, uh, in the last century or, or so. Um, so having, yeah, I guess established a little bit of where the, where the academic uh, boundaries lie, and it should be said that although you mentioned, Michael, that Central Asia and so on don't come into the picture, actually, um, it, 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 in, in a way it's expressive of exactly the story that you're telling, that when you discuss, for example, the Chinggisid or the Mongol um, uh, kind of political practices that you, that you do mention, uh, in some ways, uh, areas that are now referred to as Central Asia do come into the picture because they were part, part of this Mongol world. So in a way, those boundaries uh, actually throughout the course of the book, the, the, the fallacy of these these divisions into Central Asia, Inner Asia, East Asia, reveal themselves quite well. Um, but you had experts brought together at your conferences and your symposia from all of these different sub-regions or regions um, and as I mentioned right at the beginning of my introduction, the book is a kind of, it's, it's an absolutely unique, uh, as far as I can tell, uh, construction. Maybe not wholly unique, maybe you know other examples. But the, the way that it moves between uh, your own, uh, the two of you and Meek's voices as editors uh, and presenters of the material and the individual authors who contribute it um, is absolutely fascinating. These sort of small sections uh, within the chapters that these various uh, regional uh, and, and country-specific experts and historians and, and, and other disciplinary specialists present. It's, it's an amazing uh, balance and, and, and woven together in a tremendously seamless fashion. Could you say a bit more about how you came to that structure, how you came to plan the book as it is? Michael, I, I, I don't know if you want to give us a picture of how, how it is that the book is both authored and edited, as you, uh, as you describe it in the introduction. Yes, I think uh, uh, we've described it as a kind of hybrid between a typical authored book and a typical edited volume. Um, and what we wanted to do was we wanted to tell a story, um, and therefore it needed to uh, the book needed to stay um, as a storyline, a narrative that would be readable that people can just read and that we wanted them to read from cover to cover rather than picking and choosing a particular author or chapter that they already know, that they already have expertise in um, and want to read, which is what, what very often happens with edited volumes. Um, and the object of the book is precisely to engage specialists in different areas to um, read and understand the context of their specialization um, in the context of, of these these uh, uh, other areas of study and also these other areas geographically. Um, and at the same and and so we wanted to tell a narrative that resulted from these five uh, round tables or seminars that we had in different parts of the world. But at the same time, we wanted some of the best experts in the world on specific topics that are addressed in the book to have their voice be heard, to tell the story 
um, as experts because we're not necessarily experts in, in, in all these different fields. In fact, we're not. Um, it's impossible to be. And so that is why we have this mix so that there is the expert's voice and at the same time it is woven into a narrative that um, interprets and presents uh, this very complex material in a way that we hope is readable. Mm-hmm. No, it certainly is. Uh, it is that, um, and 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 I think uh, having teed, teed us up or lined up the book, I think we should actually dive into the first chapter, perhaps, in some of the substantive material. Um, so you discuss the the fact that, uh, as you've already mentioned, history and, and divergent ideas over over the past and over ways. Uh, Tim, you already gestured at this: the ways of uh, claiming sovereignty or, or, or asserting leadership. Um, differ between these different uh, political bodies over time. Um, what, in very broad terms, uh, and this is a subject you deal with in the introduction, why is it that that, uh, that history and that past of divergent uh, in, uh, political settlements in these different places plays such an important role in contemporary international relations? Um, perhaps, uh, perhaps, Tim, uh, you could jump in and say something about that. Our um, concern was to to animate what is in the minds of of uh, political actors all across Asia today and to do that by going back and thinking historically. So if you're Chinese, you may have certain assumptions uh, about China being the center of the world, the emperor being the son of heaven, a, a, a theology in which heaven has given a mandate to the ruler to rule on behalf of the people and then to subordinate the rest of the world to that rule. Well, that's a Chinese vision. Uh, but if you're not Chinese, no one else subscribes to it. There are other visions working. One of the visions, and it became very strong, the more we thought about it, the stronger it became, is, is the vision from the Mongol world, the, the Chinggisid vision, the idea that all the world should be subject to the ruler who proves himself capable of ruling the world, um, and that um, China is not seen as a as a central place in the Mongol vision. That it's centered up in Mongolia. At the same time, you have another vision in Tibet, where the uh, the the, the uh, reincarnate lamas, particularly the the lineage of the Dalai Lama, provides another source of authority. Um, linking the, if you like, the cosmic world to the world of people. So um, the reason why we, we, we got thinking this way, I think, was because of what happened during the period of the Qing, when um, the Manchus proved masterful at, at operating as Chinese rulers and as Mongol Khans and as Tibetan bodhisattvas all at the same time. Uh, it, it, and, and once you think of them as that way, you don't just think of China as China, but you think of this multi-centered Asia, it's a completely different um, terrain than what you have in the European world, where the study of international relations was developed, in which everyone is basic, basically subscribing to the same theology. They're not having to operate on different registers simultaneously, whereas Asians historically have, have done much more of that. Mm, right, and, and and Michael, given that your uh, sort of day to day activities uh, of late have been concerned with conflict resolution in a very contemporary way, could you say something about why it is that you feel that these modes of uh, of differential uh, sovereignty and, and claims to authority, which are undoubtedly historical uh, tendencies that we can study, why are they important in contemporary international affairs? I mean, we don't want to assume that everything is eternal about these uh, systems or about these uh, kind of arrangements. So, so what is it that uh, convinces you that, mean that, that these are still now very salient issues? Well, they're, they're essential to understand in the first place because um, much of what is uh, claimed in terms of territorial sovereignty today in particular by by the PRC, by China, is based on historical narratives that are grounded in one, in the Chinese case, very clearly in the cynic worldview uh, and the legal order that 
uh, emanated from that worldview. Um, and at the same time, Mongolians today, but not just Mongolians, also a number of Central Asians, um, Tibetans, each view um, contemporary events also and the claims that are being made uh, from the perspective of their understanding of their history and their relations with the other polities in Asia. In other words, the way that, a, that typically the Chinese would view um, their past relations with other polities and the way that Tibetans or Mongolians would, and we know that that's true also of, of people in, in, uh, in the South China Sea. They each view it from their perspective. Um, and as a result, it, unless one understands where that comes from, um, how those different perceptions originated, uh, it's very difficult to assess those historical claims and it's very difficult to deal with them. Um, so so that's, that's one of the uh, uh, principal reasons why, in our view, it's essential to understand them today. And besides that, there are still some remnants of, uh, of some of the ideologies, some of the thinking that, that still percolate into um, international relations in Asia today. Right. Right. Well, perhaps I'll uh, move you on then and stay with you, Michael, to move us into the first sort of uh, main case study that, that we have. Uh, chapter one, uh, we've more or less co- covered in terms of setting up the, uh, uh, the, the terms of the book and the, the, the project as a whole. Um, but chapter two takes us into, into Mongolia and, and uh, Chinggisid rule uh, and the Mongol great state uh, is the chapter title um, and has contributions there from um, Lamerson Monkoden, uh, Koichi Matsuda, and Hodon Kim uh, on different dimensions of this uh, Mongolian um, uh, system, if you like. Um, could you give us a picture of, of the Mongolian uh, side of things uh, in this in this broader picture? And I should say too that you you cite uh, 1206 uh, as your starting date for the book as a whole when Chinggis Khan took the title of Great Khan. So in a way, we have a Mongol departure point for the whole project too. Uh, so yeah, Michael, could you could you give us a picture of the, the Mongol dimension? Yes. So the the as Tim was saying earlier, um, as we um, as we worked on the project, it became clear and clear how much impact the Mongol um, the Mongol Empire, but also the Mongol um, uh, political thinking and statesmanship. Um, how much influence that's had in Asia and and well beyond Asia, in Eurasia, one might say. Um, and so it's, again, for that reason also, it is important to, to uh, address it and understand it. Um, briefly, what the chapter shows is how the Genghisid Empire um, was very much created as a, as a family empire. And uh, this is also why we use the term Jinkisid to refer not just to uh, the Mongol Empire at its greatest points or at the time when Jinkis Khan himself was still alive, but it is the tradition that uh, and the systems that he put in place, systems of governance, systems of expansion, um, of imperial rule that continue to live in Asia um, and, as I say, in some other parts of Eurasia as well, um, uh, all the way up to the early 20th century. Um, the um, One of the basic concepts of the Jinkisid Empire and uh, of the Jinkisid worldview was the um, emanation of authority and power, legitimation of it on the basis of blood lineage, on the basis of being a close relative, a direct relative, um, to Genghis Khan and his family. And even in, in, uh, in the much later times, when um, there might not have been an immediate descendant of Genghis Khan available to rule a particular part of Eurasia, uh, one finds that methods are devised by those that wish to rule to somehow still create a connection with Genghis Khan. Um, even when uh, when the Manchus 
um, created their Qing Empire, they wished to establish the connection with the Jinkisid world, with Genghis Khan, and to present themselves as the great Khan, as the successor to Genghis Khan. And so, um, uh, but also simply the, the, the concept of the great state, which Tim can, can address, uh, because he's been looking at it, uh, even after our project a little further, may not have been, um, a, an invention of the Mongols, but it was certainly given a, a new shape and new importance that, um, that all subsequent uh, empires and some other states adopted as their form of of presentation of their uh, of their political project, if you like. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And just before we uh, go, go, go on to that, perhaps in, in terms of this sort of family Genghisid uh, kind of organizational mode uh, that you outline, what consequences did this have for territory uh, as we might think of it now, for um, control over actual you know, physical land, not to lock us too much in, in, in Eurocentric terms or, or Western-centric ideas, but um, what what possibilities did that open up for control over the, the realm that uh, the Genghisid um, state kind of controlled, if you like? Again, I'm sort of nervous about saying anything <laughs> in, the, in these terms, but, but perhaps you could say something about the, the kind of terrestrial dimension. Well, as it... As the the uh, uh, the great Mongol state, as as it uh, or Mongol great state, as uh, as it was called, grew, um, it expanded uh, through this family system by putting uh, by uh, putting uh, originally brothers and nephews and sons uh, of Genghis Khan in charge of a particular. Uh, expansion project of a particular conquest, um, and then um, making those individuals responsible for ruling a particular, um, not I wouldn't say so much a particular territory or or uh, or region, but rather uh, rule a um, uh, subjugated rulers and their polities, um, especially when one talks about. Uh, nomadic states, uh, territory is secondary, and um, uh, and certainly in the in the Mongol uh, great state, loyalty to the ruler and therefore to the family was paramount, and so the whole structure was based simply on uh, delegating rule to family members, and family members um, therefore. Um, ruled all the way from uh, the Pacific to at, at its greatest expansion to the um, shores of the Mediterranean um, with uh, obviously one of the well-known um, descendants of Genghis Khan, Hublai Khan, uh, ruling among other regions, what we call China today, um, as a Mongol Khan. Uh, and somehow history has been um, hijacked in a sense to have turned Hublai Khan as the kind of main Mongol emperor that we uh, that that we are familiar with, uh, and has been rechristened by Chinese historiography very often uh, characterized as a Chinese emperor, and this is what sticks in many people's minds. Sure. No, I think that's that, that cuts strikes to the heart of the of the contemporary side to these these questions. And and I, yeah, I found especially actually Hodong Kim's uh, contribution in this chapter on what China meant under the Yuan or the Yakomongol Ulfs, uh, the, the state under under Kublai Khan, to be absolutely fascinating and, and really yeah compelling, uh, if you like, a rebuttal of any idea that uh, these these people were doing something that was commensurate with. Chinese emperorness, um, but Tim, uh, perhaps I'll move on to you as we uh, head forward. Um, Michael mentioned that you are, yeah, something of a, 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 a great state uh, expert, if you like. But the Ming, of course, uh, is also your wheelhouse. So, um, could you uh, give us a picture of the, the tribute system, something that's come under a lot of attention for many years um, in terms of this uh, this sort of China-focused uh, side to 
relations in this region. Um, and I'll just uh, point out too that uh, yeah, Chapter 3 features contributions from uh, Yuan Kang Wang, Jeff Wade and Liam Kelly. Um, so could you uh, give us a picture of what's uh, in this Ming section? Yes, well, the tribute system tends to be, um, tends to f- fill up the space when, when you want to talk about uh, something like traditional Chinese international relations, um, uh, to the point that some people say, well, there wasn't anything that really you want to call a tribute system, that isn't how it worked. Well, we found that the tribute system, in fact, is a useful rubric. These were This was a set of particular rules that China put in place to say, if you want to come to China, whether to engage in diplomacy or to engage in trade, um, you have to follow this protocol. And other states in the region realized that, that the only way they could get to China was to work through the protocol. So the tribute system was a real thing. But what we wanted to do in, in the chapter on the Ming was to, uh, was to indicate that, that um, only China read the tribute system as a kind of orderly, civilizing process. Um, no one else did. Tributaries did not flock to China because they were... Uh, they were uh, uh, um, slavering to 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 get hold of Chinese civilization. They understood this as a difficult, violent, so often violent set of relationships that they had to negotiate by adapting to the tribute system. But they had their own uh, they had their own uh, diplomatic and trade goals as well, and, and were very intent on pursuing them. Now, the way I think we sort of embed that within the larger Eurasian context is through the concept that that Michael has raised already, the great state, that if we think of the Ming not as somehow overthrowing the Mongol Mongol world, but in fact inheriting and in some ways perpetuating the Mongol world, we get a very different idea of the tribute system. the the uh, the Mongols uh, understood themselves to have the authority to rule the world, and the Ming took that on as well. The, the tribute system is supposed to be a way to protect your tributaries, but in fact, in actual practice, especially with the first uh, four Ming emperors, uh, first five Ming, well, first six Ming emperors, in fact, um, there was this lingering sense that they too should be Mongol Khans, that they should too should go out and conquer. They too should demand rulers from the rest of the world, submit to them. And uh, this is very different, I think, than the story that Chinese have tended to tell themselves about what the tribute system was against very stable, very orderly, very Confucian, when in fact the Mongol, uh, the Mongol environment within which the tribute system was reenacted really changed that uh, into a much more expansive and much more difficult international system of international relations than, than we normally think. Yeah, no, I, th- I think this is uh, really uh, something I hadn't, hadn't really come across much before is, is this portrayal, uh, as you mentioned, of the tribute system from a Ming point of view, from a Chinese point of view as, uh, as a Sino-centric world. But when looked at from the other direction, uh, it, it's seen in a Mongol-centric way. It's a, it's a, it's a brilliant balancing of... Uh, of, of, of the sort of different perspectives that uh, different sides can have on exactly the same uh, kind of uh, interpolity relationship, well, and, uh, if and, you like. And, and this is why um, we, we ended up doing the book in the way in which we did, giving, giving the Mongol tradition just as much space as the Chinese tradition, because if you just abstract China out from the multiple Eurasian influences within which it operated, you just you miss the complexity of the story. And you end up telling the a kind of repeating a sinocentric story, and we very much wanted to to get ourselves out of that. And I might add to that also that that uh, for for that reason, but also because if you um, if you look at if 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 you uh, look at history or present it um, in the way that it often is in the sinocentric way of presenting it as a, a seamless succession of dynasties ruling China and therefore a large part of, of Asia, um, you miss the essential point in, in this particular period that we're talking about the Ming right now, you miss the essential, the, the essential fact that the Mongols were still extremely powerful, um, not only as a continuation of the uh, Yuan Empire, 
um, in uh, in parts of of Inner Asia, but there were other um, uh, parts of Eurasia um, where Mongols were were um, ruling just as they had been during, under the uh, under the the Genghis Khan's successor empires. Um, and so one tends to forget that, that China at that time, Ming China, was just one, as Tim said earlier, just one polity among many, some of which were very powerful at the time in, uh, uh, in this area of the world. And, and accordingly, when you take that perspective, you see that um, uh, China wasn't operating the only tribute system. Um, Several of the of the Genghis's successor states in the Mongol world also had their own tributaries coming to to uh, to visit them. There was a it, it was a it was a multi vectoral uh, system of international relations that was going on in this period. Right, and it's yeah, it is all these overlaps and these these uh, I guess uh, yeah, competing and often not entirely commensurate systems in operation simultaneously that you bring out and uh, another real. Uh, sort of strength of the book is that within each chapter you see the same relationship that might have been mentioned in a previous chapter from the other side and and, and so you're as likely to see uh, the Tibetan relationship with the Manchus in the Tibet chapter as you are to see the Manchu relationship with Tibet in the Manchu chapter so you really get the full picture rounded out uh, in this in this way Um, and and on Tibet really perhaps I would say maybe the, the lesser less known of, of, of the sort of major uh, systems that, that feature in this book. Perhaps that betrays my bias uh, and, and ignorance. But, um, Michael, I wonder if I could get you to move on to Chapter 4 in the Tibetan Buddhist world, uh, which features contributions from uh, Dali Jabu, John Ardusi, and Matthew Kapstein. Um, what was unique about the Tibetan system, and why should it be considered alongside the others? I think part of the reason why... Um as you've said, it is less well, it's less, one, one is less familiar with it. Um, it's because one is less familiar with it as a political system, as a legal order, um, and, and, and generally thinking of Tibetans, one thinks only of the spiritual and religious side of it, um, of their civilization. Um, the the importance of the Tibetan Buddhist world, and this is a broader concept than the Tibet, a Tibetan polity or a Tibetan state, because it includes um, the uh, the polities south of the Himalayas that uh, very much worked in the, in the same uh, legal order, uh, but also the Mongols. In other words, the Mongols during um, uh, from early on after Genghis Khan, but through uh, to, in fact, to the present day, but certainly to the early 20th century, were operating both within the Jinkisid Mongol world and within the Tibetan Buddhist world, uh, and the two coexisted. In other words, they used the systems of legitimation, of governance um, to some degree, and uh, of, of uh, building relations with other qualities within the Tibetan Buddhist world in accordance with um, both those systems. Um, and as Tim pointed out earlier, and we'll get to that when we talk about the Mantras again, the Mantras also did so, but also used the cynic system. Um, so they operated in all three. Now, the Tibetan, the Tibetan Buddhist um, uh, polities um, were, were grounded in a... Uh, in the concept of the union of uh, of a duality in itself, but the union of the spiritual and the religious, uh, of the spiritual or religious and the worldly rule. In other words, everything was uh, theoretically at the service of the spiritual or the religious, um, but uh, everything had a spiritual and a worldly side to it. Uh, and so rulers did, Policies did, and the policies that they followed, and what makes it interesting in terms of international relations is that you find that when you look at the way the Tibetans, in particular, ruled their their policy, which stretched throughout the whole uh, Tibetan plateau, 
Um, they did so almost always in conjunction with um, an external protector, um, the protector being primarily Mongols, but uh, during the time of the Manchu Empire, uh, partly Mongols, and then at some point the Manchus take over and become the primary protectors of the Dalai Lama and therefore of the Tibetan polity, of the Tibetan state. Um, and that is what we call uh, rule by relationship. Um, it, it saves the Tibetan rulers uh, who are religious, saves the Tibetan rulers from the need to arm themselves to the teeth to defend their interests because they have a, um, a benefactor, a protector that um, supports them both in terms of finance, but more importantly in terms of security and defense. And so you find that many of the wars that are being fought um, by the Tibetans or on behalf of the Tibetans are, are fought by primarily by the Mongols. And as I say later in history, uh, on a few occasions by the Manchus. Right. And it's insights like that that reveal, I suppose, the, the simultaneous and overlapping and mutually imbricated or entangled nature of all of these uh, these systems. It, 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 it kind of does paint a picture of the inseparability in some ways or the mutual uh, kind of constituency or reliance of, of, of these things on one another. And I think, uh, as we'll get to um, shortly, in a way, the, the ultimate incompatibility with the idea that you have these uh, separate, mutually exclusive sovereign states um, that, 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 that later kind of uh, is an idea that arrives in East Asia and Central Asia, Inner Asia, pretty forcefully. Um, but before that, I suppose... Tim, you brought up the Manchus earlier, almost as a point of departure for understanding how these things could all be going on at once. Um, and in the context of the book, it's a it's a culmination in a sense because we move forward uh, temporarily to the uh, post or the 17th century onward Manchu great state um, with contributions from Nicola di Cosmo, Hiroki Oka, uh, Nobuaki Murakami, and Pamela Crosley. Um, and this. It, of course, is a period uh, which, by these authors and many others, is one of the most celebrated and contested eras in uh, in, in, in recent Chinese history. Um, so, could you say more, uh, as you hinted at earlier, about how the Manchu Great State demonstrates the ideas that really run throughout the book? Well, it's hard to imagine us uh, having even been able to conceive this project without what the Manchus did. It was really an extraordinary. Um, moment of history in which a fairly small inner Asian polity was able, which had been a, a tributary to several Mongol groups, a tributary to Ming China, um, then steps in, conquers, uh, takes over the Ming great state, and then gradually appropriates the entire Mongol world and eventually the Tibetan and Kazakh and uh, Dzungar worlds as well to the creation of this massive entity that Chinese call the Qing dynasty, and in this book we call the Qing Great State. So the, the Manchus, in a sense, realize a Jingusid ambition, they realize a Chinese ambition, um, and they very much rely on uh, Tibetan Buddhist protocol to establish themselves as the masters of most of East Asia. So it's, it's an extraordinary uh, development in history. And and at the same time, I mean, I, I, to look both ways, to look forward then, it's the Qing great state that has given the People's Republic of China today, it's handed them, handed them its worst nightmares, its most difficult problems, because the Manchus created a state that is in some major ways incompatible with modern concepts of sovereignty. So the trouble with the trouble that the PRC has with, with Mongols, with, with Uyghurs, with Tibetans, uh, with other groups, uh, particularly in inner Asia, all of these problems are the creation of a different political order that today to Chinese has, has become completely unfamiliar. And yet that for three centuries was the order that dominated Asia. So, so the, the the period of the Qing is just a, a remarkable uh, concatenation of influences and combination of influences. 
And then down comes the curtain of the 19th century. Uh, the Europeans arrive uh, through gunboat diplomacy. They impose, they seek to impose a different international order that um, that then makes it very difficult for Chinese post 19th century to imagine what this what this Manchu world was all about. And that's what we're trying to do in the book to 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 reimagine this world very much from a, a, a multi-perspectival but Asian point of view. Mm. Well, and the, and the kind of dazzling complexity of that that Qing arrangement does does really come out here. Uh, I mean, even within the broad uh, currents that you just outlined, that maybe that you know the, the, the tributary Chinese uh, sort of method of exerting rule, uh, Mongol and Tibetan practices. Even under those layers, there are other things going on. Um, Pamela Crosley's cha- uh, sub chapter, in particular, sort of outlines this. Uh, tributary arrangements between the Qing and, and Choson Korea, uh, which of course were so infinitely complex and Choson was always seemingly turning up at the Qing court, which might look like they were kind of best mates, but actually she reveals that in many cases uh, this was because of the tension that existed. So this this sort of harmonious picture of tributaries coming to the court and, and paying uh, paying their respects is, is absolutely dismantled really. By, and, and, uh, yes, that. and the, the rise of... Um... Of, of the, the the study of Korea's international relations in East Asia in the last decade has been absolutely marvelous because Korea gives us a an eccentric point of view from which to look at all of these other developments and it would have been nice to incorporate more on Korea in the book than we we did but but we do we do we do give Korea a look in, in into this yeah, project. Well, does emerge more actually uh, as we move into the, uh, chapter six and, and seven, the final two chapters, which really bring us up to the arrival of the modern state system and, and the uh, enduring presence of some of these pasts in uh, in the in the contemporary political order. Um, Korea and Japan uh, both come into chapter six, where we look at this transition because, as you mentioned, Tim, they're so revealing. Um, so um, uh, Shogo Suzuki, Kirk Larson, and Alex Mackay. Uh, contribute there to McKay to the uh, chapter six um, and the transition of the modern uh, state system brought in, as you say, in by European gunboat diplomacy and so on. So, um, uh, Michael, perhaps I'll turn back to you. Um, how did this kind of uh, arrival of the modern state system collide with existing inner and East Asian systems? How did its legitimation and, and, and legal settlements in a way differ from what existed already uh, in this region? It brought, a, it brought a tremendous amount of tension, um, and the tensions that originated at that time are, are still, the consequences of it are still uh, very much felt in Asia today. Um, we've already alluded to the, to the uh, distinction between, the difference between the way in which sovereignty was conceived in, um, uh, in historical Asia and how it is conceived under the Westphalian model, if you like, um, of which international law is is, a, is an expression. Um, sovereignty in the Westphalian sense and uh, under international law is exclusive. It's very territorially determined. Um, it is to some degree absolute. Um, and um, because that was not the case uh, in historical um, East Asia, you get a situation where um, with the coming of the Europeans uh, and their intrusion um, and uh, uh, claiming a privileged position in Asia, um, you almost see a scramble by different polities, by different rulers, to establish some type of credentials to be able to then claim sovereignty in a Westphalian sense over areas where they may have had a particular type of relationship in the old system, uh, but uh, not necessarily something that could translate into territorial sovereignty. And in that scramble, you get conflicts between uh, different sides. If you just think of the Mongolians um, and the Tibetans, in both cases, their relationships with the Manchus were determined in accordance with uh, their own legal orders. In other words, the the Manchu emperor, for example, in his relations with the Tibetans, uh, applied the Tibetan Buddhist 
legal orders, concepts, and norms, and constructs for those relations. And those constructs did not involve territorial sovereignty. Um, they, in fact, did not involve um, uh, a form of uh, direct rule, um, but a relationship that was consensual, that was mutually beneficial, um, and therefore could also be ended uh, by either side. Um, it was a consensual relationship uh, also that lay at the root of the Mongol-Manchu relationship, although there it was much more hierarchical because the Jinkisid system was more hierarchical. Uh, but in, in the, um, uh, the Tibet-Manchu relationship, there was an equality uh, of sorts there um, and um, a, a mutual benefit component, which when translated, when, when China attempted to translate that into a modern concept of sovereignty, led to them needing to invade Tibet in 1909, in order to demonstrate to the British um, that they could actually exercise effective control and claim sovereignty, um, which they could not have before in a, in a Westphalian sense because they had no real presence in Tibet. Um, so it's the, the kinds of relationships that existed before were difficult to translate into the modern concepts um, and so you have uh, in Suzuki's piece, he, he very well shows how the Japanese got ahead of the game by um, applying the, the European concepts of um, territorial sovereignty, empire, to become uh, themselves one of the great powers in Asia uh, and be respected as a member of the international community because they started behaving like the European imperial powers. The, uh, the Tibetans never did that. They tried, neither did the Mongolians. They tried to retreat into their own system, into their own legal order, um, believing that that would protect them from these kinds of intrusions um, and ended up losing out as a result. Yeah, I think that, that sort of the, the organization of the book, again, the bit by bit sort of nature of the presentation of the different perspectives and the different situations in different places really brings very out, out very vividly the wrenching transition and the and the kind of piecemeal establishment of this new uh, sort of way of uh, doing things that, that kind of diverge between um, different states. And, and it's a shame that we don't have time to delve into that more, but listeners obviously will be able to pick up the book themselves and have a, have a dive in. Um, perhaps I'll ask one final question, turning back to China again uh, and Tim. Um, uh, you end the book, not to, you know, not to make it too sino focused in a way, but um, clearly China is unignorable uh, in the in contemporary region. Um, you mentioned a couple of cases of how China's uh, sort of activities today may be reawakening some of these past modes of engaging with the region, in particular over the appointment of the Dalai Lama and, and the successor to the current Dalai Lama, and also in the South China Sea. Um, could you just uh, conclude perhaps by, by saying how this brings out perhaps some of these uh, past tendencies and, and, and historical echoes that we've been discussing. We ended up with China uh, at the end of the book because today in the region, China is of the most, uh, uh, the most, uh, uh, I'm not sure what adjective to use, the most prominent state, to, to some extent, the most, um, the most outwardly focused state at the moment. China is uh, is not, dis despite the way in which China has sometimes been, been, been seen as a sort of place that closes in on itself and simply looks outward, China is very much out in the world at the moment um, uh, through the One Belt, One Road program. But that the world that it, it is out into is primarily the Asian world. Asia is experiencing China's expansion at the moment. And, um, and, and of course, it's... it's um, it's it's not going well on a lot of fronts. Internally, there are problems of legitimation, and uh, the 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 great irony of the and it's a sad irony of the situation of Tibetans within China is that the People's Republic of China is committed to the concept of reincarnation 
and it's right to appoint the next reincarnations of the of the great lamas of Tibet. Um, and it's it it seems from a Western perspective like a, a very curious thing that the the Chinese government should care about Buddhist reincarnation, but it does for the reasons that we're talking about. And of course, it has nothing to do with theology; and it has everything to do with the exercise of political powers. So China is the most expansive presence at the moment. The South China Sea and the East China Sea have been zones of particular tension over the last few years. And um, as Michael has said earlier, there's expectations on everyone's part that don't converge. So Japanese are looking at China a certain way. Vietnamese, um, uh, Indonesians, uh, everyone is looking at these these, uh, political tensions from their own historical experience. And those historical experiences just don't overlap very well. Uh, This becomes one of the problems for for the kind of work that uh, that Michael does as a uh, negotiator of of intrastate and interstate uh, tensions, right? Well, and, and I think uh, yeah, the book as a whole does a terrific job of uh, of outlining what what substance underlies this this non uh, or not seeing eye to eye between various major players in the region. Um, but in any case, um, of course, I will encourage listeners to get the book and delve deeper into it. Uh, but for now, uh, Tim and Michael, thank you very much uh, to both of you uh, for giving us your time today. And um, before we let you go, perhaps um, you could give us a picture of what you're up to now and how things have developed since this uh, pretty extraordinary and, and, and wide-ranging project. Uh, Michael, why don't you uh, sort of give us a, uh, an idea of what you've got in the pipeline? Well, in relation to uh, to this particular project and the follow-up to it, um, we have started looking more specifically um, at the uh, conflict between uh, the PRC and Tibet, between China and Tibet, um, drawing from what we now understand much better in terms of the background to the conflict and to the different perceptions uh, of where the parties are today. Uh, we have tried to sort um, out the differences between or, or the distinction, the distinctive types of narratives. Um, on the one hand, those that have grown simply out of the the historical existence of these three legal orders and the different ways in which um, history could legitimately be, and the relationships between these players could legitimately be interpreted. On the one hand, making that transparent can help to resolve some of the tensions, but on the other hand, also. Um, distinguishing that from the type of narrative that is uh, has been invented um, uh, by either rewriting of history or reinterpretation of history to serve political objectives today and that um, are not simply grounded in a different historical way of looking at history, but are an instrument of politics that aggravate tensions. Um, and that in many cases are simply fabrications. Um, uh, And interestingly, most of them are originating from the uh, early to mid-20th century, precisely in that period of time when China was trying to prove its territorial um, uh, boundaries uh, vis-à-vis Western states, vis-à-vis European powers in particular, and Japan. Um, and that legacy of uh, is is today being used um, to to perpetrate some of these narratives that were invented then and that had no basis in uh, in real historical fact. So we're trying to make those the distinction between those two types of historical narratives um, to in order to help the parties move forward, uh, hopefully someday towards a dialogue. Great. Well, that's, uh, that sounds extremely valuable uh, at the current moment. Um, Tim, how about you? Yes, for my part, I've um, come out of this project by going back to China and attempting to re-narrate the long history of China's, the history of China's relationships with the world. So um, uh, the book that's coming out of this is called Great State, China and the World. It will come out this fall 
from uh, Profile in London and then HarperCollins this winter. And it's my attempt to try and get us to think about China, neither from a Western nor from a Chinese point of view, but to see China caught in a web of relationships, uh, but also to narrate them down at the, the level where people actually are face to face with each other and interact with each other. So the book starts also like like this. Well, the book starts with uh, with Kublai Khan. And so I'm looking at China's relationships from then all the way down to the 20th century. Fantastic. Well, that'll be uh, yeah. Also, I think a uh, wonderful complementary contribution to uh, to this uh, big picture, uh, which is so important to us uh, now. Um, but uh, well, Tim and Michael, thank you both once again uh, for being on the show today. It was uh, really great talking to you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you. And listeners, uh, many thanks to you too for listening as ever to New Books in East Asian Studies, the podcast channel on the New Books Network. And we will be back with you very soon. <laughs>